Amen. You can grab a seat. So glad you're with us this morning. As we continue in our Christmas season, and I'm not a very good pastor, I think other pastors probably like planned on Christmas. For me, we're just plowing through 1 John and just staying what I was already doing. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn or tap your way to 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to make this kind of a Christmassy sermon in the way that Hope Church celebrates Christmas, which is to talk a lot about the International Mission Board and this big offering that we're hoping to make for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. What I want to do today is talk about the next thing that we're talking about, but I want to show how it applies, not just to an offering as though I'm just trying to get you to give more money, but I'm really trying to get you to give more money, but to show you the why, to develop in your heart some of the warmth that leads, not just to faithful giving for a specific missional offering, but for the whole of the Christian life. So I want to read it with you. If you have a Bible, 1 John chapter 4. Uh, you can turn there. If you have a digital Bible, please tap there. We'd love for you to use your device. That's totally fine. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have those words on the screen, but we'd love to give you a Bible in a readable English translation before you leave. 1 John chapter 4, starting verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God. And knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, work on that word, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, I don't want to assume that everybody's been here for this whole series, but should you have been, or if you're somebody that likes to read along with us, we're going through 1 John, so maybe in the week you open up 1 John and read a little bit and try and think about what we might talk about, what we have talked about, what does it say? If you have, then you'll notice that one of the themes that comes up again and again and again is this whole love your brother thing. If you have a hard time loving other people within Hope Church, maybe it just kind of sticks in you every time you hear it because you think, oh, quit bringing it up. I ignored it the first eight times and here comes the ninth. Why does John continue to tell us to love one another? And why does he command it in such a way that he connects it? Not just with what it is to be like a faithful Christian or to try and do a good job. He connects it at a DNA level with being born again. Boy, that's really frustrating and it's really intense. But, but what I want to try to do today is what we've done a little bit to this point. I want to walk with you through the connection. I want you to see how knowing God's love necessarily entails your love of other people. And it's not just self-serving, even though it's very self-serving. I'm a pastor of Hope Church. One of the hardest things for me is just trying to deal with people, right? You know, the other pastors and I, like, as we walk through the difficult things that come up, like 99% of them would just, you know, evaporate if you guys loved each other as Jesus loves us. But of course, you know, we'll, we'll settle for maybe not for Jesus' love yet, but just a growing love for one another. So, so how do we get there? How do we see what John is saying and, and how do we get to a place where we get excited about him saying the same thing 
over and over because we need to hear the same thing over and over. What he does in these passages is he tells us who God is. He tells us what God's done, what that has done to us, and then how that flows out from us. Man, I think this is really important, though. It's important because it's going to help to change your behavior, but it's important because it's going to help you to believe something that's really hard to believe. If you're like me, there are a lot of resources out there to help you believe the things that some people find are hard to believe in Christianity. I actually don't find it hard to believe that the Bible's true. I don't find it hard to believe that God exists or that he created I don't find it hard to believe in miracles that Jonah was swallowed by a whale or that Jesus multiplied bread and turned water into wine. That stuff's not hard for me. And it's not because I'm good at faith. It's because I've read. Like, there's really great resources out there. This is all stuff that you can defend. Here's the thing that's hard for me to believe in Christianity. It is actually difficult for me to believe when the Bible says that God loves me. Like, miracles... No problem. If there's a supernatural God, he can do supernatural things. But the fact that that God loves me, like I've heard that before and from people I trust, but then I live my life and I do things that are bad. When I do bad things, I feel shame. And it's really, really difficult for me to believe that God loves me when I do bad things. When I do good things, it's easy for me to believe God loves me. But that's actually not God loving me. That's like God like applauding me or God like rewarding me like an employer. That's not a love relationship. So whether I do good or whether I do bad, what's under attack in my heart is what the Bible says on about every page. If you're like me in that way, then we've got to submit to what the Apostle John says over and over and over again. Maybe it's just that I don't want to go on mission with God in the same way that God calls me to. Man, if, if God really did call me to love others the way that he loved me, that would be a big problem. And so one of the other things that's hard for me to believe sometimes is that the mission that I'm called on is exactly what I'm actually called to. But I want to today show you that you can't get away. You can't get away from the fact of God's love, the reality of it, and all of its beauty and complexity, but you also can't get away from the mission that that love puts you on. Let's do it. Here it says, first, that God is love. You may have heard people talk about that before. Look again at verses seven and eight. He says, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Those are pretty famous words. I don't know if you've interacted with Christianity much or interacted with conversation kind of around Christianity, but that gets thrown out a lot. People remind you that God is love. And John even does. He goes again in verse 16 and says, so we have come to know and to believe that the, the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. God abides in him. He says it twice. God is love. But, but what does he mean by that? When people throw it out, I, I want to just take a moment and clarify what we're talking about. Because the culture says a lot of stuff about love. You hear phrases like love is love. 
And I don't know exactly what everybody means when they say that. I think some people mean that like all forms of attraction are commendable as long as people are able to give consent. You hear things like love wins. Again, I, it kind of depends on the context and who's saying what when they mean by that phrase. But there are times when I hear people say God is love and what they really mean is love is God. What they really mean is love is a, a first principle. Love is a thing that can't be argued with. It, it's just a presupposition. It's just the beginning of the math problem before you do any of the work. It's just handed to you. And, and love can't be argued with. And then they go a little further and define love however they want to define love. And that's why people at Hope Church can be really frustrating to talk to. We can be a little pedantic. We can use words like pedantic. Because we're going to force you to define your terms. Oh, but what do you mean by that? Help me. Let's make sure we're saying the same thing. How, how would you define love? Something that stymied philosophers. You're going to ask your partner in conversation to define love. But, but you got to try. Let's make sure at least that we're talking about the same thing. Because if we're not, then let's not use the Apostle John to say what he, he didn't say. If we're going to do that, though, we got to know what he did say. What, what does John mean when he says that God is love? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that God is love and we can't say anything else about him. John says lots of things about God. He even says some things in the same construction as God is love. He says earlier in the book, God is light. Do you ever hear that one quoted? Yeah, Maybe you should, like it's in there. It's a little ironic that God is light is kind of in the dark and we don't talk about that one too much. But, but if God is love, he's certainly also light. It is the Christian's responsibility as you read through scripture to say that all of the things the Bible says are true. God knows how to say more than one thing and have those things be flush. He, he can say that God is love and also say that God is light. So what does it mean when he says that God is love? Well, some people see God and maybe they've only heard things about Scripture, but maybe they've read certain things in Scripture and they think that God is violent and vengeful. So whatever kind of love he had, maybe, maybe not the kind of love they want to interact with. Maybe they think of God as neglectful or absent. They have a kind of in their head a definition of how God should interact with his creation. And if it doesn't conform, he doesn't conform to that. Then they, they can kind of think of him as absent or neglectful. Well, is that God's love? Is that what God's love looks like? There's a guy named John Piper. He's a, a pastor and New Testament theologian, and he's very helpful on these verses. He says, verse 7 says that love is from God. And then verse 8 says, God is love. These things are not at odds because when John says that love is from God, he doesn't mean it's from him in the way that letters are from a mailman or even letters are from a friend. He means that love is from God the way that heat is from fire or the way that light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it is light. And fire gives heat because it is heat. Do, do you hear that? Those metaphors are really helpful. 
to help you to start to break down and say, okay, well, what love God is going to talk about, and we'll define it a little bit more, but what love God is going to talk about isn't something that he turns on and off. It is something that he just is. We always have to try and separate for people the distinction between their earthly fathers and what it is that God is our heavenly father. And for a long time, and I've got a great dad, but for, he's in the room. Uh, I have a great dad. But for a long time, you know, as a kid, you're like, yeah, you know, our earthly fathers. But heavenly, okay, we're going to make that distinction. Now I'm a dad and I'm like, hey, man, you know, dads are trying like earthly fathers too a little bit, right? Like, and yeah, sure, you know, your dad can be faithful and your dad can be wise and your dad can be a protector and your dad can model for you certain things about who God is. But as you get into scripture, you see that the way that the heavenly father is a father is almost a totally different thing. So, so I want to understand what the Bible means when it says that God is love. It definitely means that God loves something, that he's a, a thing that loves a thing. The Bible doesn't use love in an impersonal way like the force in Star Wars. The Bible uses love to talk about the way that one thing feels about another thing. That God is the subject and he loves us, the object. That there's always a both. There's always a hugger and a huggy. There, there's two different things and love is what goes between them. So for them to say, for the Bible writers to say that God loves us or that God is love, we then have to say, all right, well, what do you mean by that? What kind of love does God love with? Well, John shows us. He says it. You can understand his love by what he's done. You want to understand who God is? Well, that's a huge question. And God, the Bible doesn't make that an easy question. The Bible says a lot of things about who God is. He's going to give you a way in by talking about his love, but then he's going to give us another way in by understanding even his love, even a more specific topic. He says in verses 9 and 10, in this, the love of God was made manifest, we'll talk about that, among us, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So there's two places where my brain gets a little muddy in these sentences. One is the made manifest. The other is propitiation. Now, I've been to seminary. I know what propitiation means, but it just doesn't seem to be a word that I see, you know, at McDonald's or, you know, like anywhere else in my life. So we'll talk about both of those things in order to understand a little bit better what he's talking about. When he says made manifest, he's, he means like appeared. It wasn't, and then it was. And I have terrible illustrations. The first thing I thought of was like magicians, but that's not good because nobody trusts magicians. Not really. Well, Jesus isn't a magician. He didn't just like he was under a table and then he appeared. And then the second thing I thought of was really dated, but Star Trek, I don't know if you know anything about it, but there would be, it's like future world and they could teleport and they had like a guy at the engineering deck and they'd be like, beam me up, Scotty. And then Scotty would go, sure, and press the button. And then from the alien planet, they would disappear. And then on the little holodeck or whatever, there would be light beams. And then, boop, Spock, he would like appear. He would be made manifest. What the Bible is saying when it says that the love of God has been made manifest is that the love of God has like appeared before us. 
This seems to be a little contradictory with what I was saying about love not just being like some abstraction. But follow a little bit and watch what happens. The Bible does this really beautifully. We get God's words, his acts throughout the whole of the Bible. Towards the beginning, we have God interacting with specific people like Abraham. And he would make promises to Abraham and he would talk to Abraham and lead him. And then as Abraham has this family, God continues his promises and he makes more promises with a guy named Jacob, one of Abraham's descendants, his grandson. As you keep going through the Bible, you see that who God is continues to be defined. It continues to be explained and how God's going to relate to humanity continues to be defined. It continues to be explained. You get to the time of the Exodus and God takes the people of Egypt, I'm sorry, the people of Israel out of the nation of Egypt. And with this guy, Moses, he explains a lot more about who he is. He gives his name to the people. He gives his ways to the people. He gives a law through Moses for the people to follow if they're going to be holy as he is holy. He gives them things to watch and see that help them to understand who he is. He gives them manna that rains from the sky every day so that they would actually eat bread that was just hand-delivered miraculously daily. He gave them the sacrificial system. That's dark, but it communicated something. He gave them this beautiful tabernacle to look at that he designed with intimate detail in order to show a lot about who he is. He even designed the priest's outfits so that the way that their heads looked and the way that their bodies and what they were wearing looked said a lot about who God was. He gave them who he was. He gave them pictures of who he is. And yet as you continue to fast forward through scripture, you see that from the sort of anarchy of the time of the judges, you get the monarchy. You get this guy, David, who shows more about who God is and even gets more promises from God. And then his son, Solomon, builds this temple. They go from a tent to this really solid, beautiful, beautiful building with intimate detail that showed who God is to his people. He's always been speaking. He's always been telling. And yet, as the writer of Hebrews says, long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Who? Well, go back to the beginning of our book of 1 John. John's really clear about this too. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it. And we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Who are we talking about? We want to understand who God is. And he says, God is love. That's giving you an angle. You know, well, what is his love like? And he's saying, now look, all that I've ever said has all come together in one perfect revelation of who I am. It takes everything that ever happened in the Old Testament. It takes everything that will ever happen. And it has perfectly shown you exactly who I am. Jesus Christ. Christ. He, he's like a table of contents. He's, he's able to show you exactly who God is. And you go, okay. So what then? Like, like, what do I know about God because I know Jesus? Like, if I look through the Bible and I'm trying to be a good student of it, I actually see that in the New Testament, that kind of second half, 
There are four books, and they're long books. Luke has crazy long chapters. Long books that tell me about Jesus. Then when I get to the end of John, he actually says that if everything Jesus did were to be written down, the world itself could not contain the books. So you tell me, look at Jesus to see God. Well, there's a lot of Jesus to look at. What exactly? Well, A, all of it. <laughs> everything Jesus did, he was exposing to the world who the Father is. But if you need to know where John wanted to direct the people that he loved, you know, John was an apostle. He spent time with Jesus. He was with him the whole of his three-year ministry. And John becomes a leader in the church after Jesus goes up to heaven. And John cares like a good father or a good pastor about the people that he's writing to. He keeps calling them, my dear children, my little ones, beloved. And what does he say to these people he cares about, about the one that John himself saw and heard and hugged? Well, he tells you exactly what you need to know about God's love as seen through Jesus. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest, appeared among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. What? In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So if we want to understand who God is, it's telling us about his love. If we understand his love, he's telling us about his son. If you want to understand his son, he's telling you very specifically. And it all comes back, and this can be a little frustrating, because it's like, okay, we're running, and then we hit this word propitiation. Whoop! Whoa! You know, we lost everything we were trying to understand. We want to understand Jesus. We need to understand his ministry. We want to understand his ministry. We need to understand his love, his propitiation. Well, what does that mean? Propitiation is a really fancy way of saying substitute. But not just substitute like a teacher. Substitute specifically for taking punishment. You know, I mean, if you say substitute like a teacher, you are taking punishment because I would never want to be a, like an elementary school teacher, much less a sub. So they're going to be even less behaved, you know, like it's awful. And you're going to take that punishment for somebody. Our school can't find subs, and I totally understand. But when Jesus is our propitiation, it means that he is our substitute when it comes to the wrath of God. You say you're going to talk about God's love. Why are you talking about God's wrath? Well, you don't understand God's love until you understand his holiness. You know, when Jesus came, he, he taught. And if you start at the beginning of the Gospels, you start with Matthew, and you don't get very far into Matthew's description of Jesus' ministry. You know, Matthew 4, he goes to this temptation. Matthew 5, he's ready to start. What's he start with? Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes, Gospel. And then he starts taking the Old Testament law and making it more intense. He said, you heard it said you shall not murder. But I tell you, if you are angry in your heart with your brother, you already murdered him. Oh, you've, heard, you've heard it said don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look lustfully on a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament laws, but I can't imagine anybody read them and said, you know what Leviticus needs? More laws. <laughs> like nobody ever read Deuteronomy and said, yeah, these laws are... It's kind of easy. Can we make them harder? And yet, when Jesus comes and does his ministry, what does he do? 
He shows you that God's holiness is even greater than the holiness that Moses understood. Now, far be it from me, I'm not trying to minimize Moses, but, but we want to maximize Jesus in the way he helps us to understand. He says, no, God is way more holy than you ever imagined. And you have broken his law so many more times and to so much greater a degree than you ever imagined. Well, that's not a great sermon. I think that's what people expect Christianity to be. You come and they just smack you around with all the things you've done wrong and tell you how holy God is and how sinful you are. And All right, now that you feel bad, you can give. You know, like that's what people I think think Christianity is. But what John is saying that Jesus did is that he showed you God's holiness because it was true. He showed you God's wrath towards sinners because it's true. But then because he loved you, he subbed out. He, he waited for you to have sin. And instead of you receiving the wrath of God for your sin, he, he subbed out. He stepped into that wrath and he took you and he put you into the reward. Propitiation. He put himself on the cross. Now, it's not like God's wrath is necessarily Roman execution. But on the cross, Jesus drinks the fullness of the wrath of God for sin. When he goes to the cross, he's not just Jesus dying and doing some theological thing. When he goes to the cross, he's doing what you and I actually deserve because of our sin before holy God. And he does it because he loves you. So what is the love of God? That. Is the love of God just blind acceptance? Well, no, there's a lot of holiness in the love of God. Is the love of God just sort of positive regard? Well, no, he seems to really want to interact with us. Is the love of God distant and neglectful? No, he was made manifest among us. Oh, is the love of God vengeful? No, he died for you. Do, do you start to see it? John really wants you to see it. That's why he talks about it so much. He, he says, listen, one day you're going to stand before God. And you're wondering, does, does God love me? Well, you can't look at your actions and say yes, but you can look at Jesus and say yes. You're wondering, like, can I stand before that judgment? No. But Jesus can. And if I'm in Jesus... That's a totally different thing. Listen, the writer of Hebrews talks about what it's like to stand before a holy God when he says, we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh gosh, that's awful. Of course it should keep you up at night with fear about what you will do or what you will say when you stand before God. That only I can... Uh, this is only for some people, but I can only imagine was a song that was sung ad nauseum in the Christian world 10 years ago plus. And it was all about this guy standing before Jesus, trying to imagine what he's going to do when he sees Jesus. Am I going to dance for you? Am I going to come and hug you? Well, that's true if you really, really, really believe the gospel. But if you're not really sure, that song's hard to get to because I'm really scared about that kind of judgment. I'm really scared about the holiness of God just smiting me. Unless, look at verses 17 to 18 in 1 John 4. 
By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. We can have confidence because we're united with him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. How? Well, fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears hasn't been perfected in love. It doesn't know that the punishment has already been paid. Listen, that's what Christianity understands to mean when it, when it says God is love. It means that God is holy and just, but he loves you so much that he put himself in your place so that you can be totally forgiven. If you can start to really see that, then you understand that when he says you're supposed to love others, you're supposed to love others like that. <laughs> you're supposed to love others sacrificially. You're supposed to love others like frequently, inconveniently. You're going to be made manifest in their lives. You've got to call them. You've got to show up and be like here regularly, not because of attendance records. We don't keep those. It would be great, by the way, but we don't keep attendance records. You need to be here regularly so that those people that are coming to see you, see you. This is what he says our love ought to look like, 11 and 12. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God's love abides in us and love is perfected in us. What is he saying? You, you can't just go see God. There is a judgment. It hasn't happened yet. But if we love one another, that characteristic of who God is becomes expressed in our people. Look again at 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, liar. Because he doesn't love his brother whom he has seen. He cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So what does that look like? Well, you know, at Hope, we've been here for half a minute. Not nearly as long as we hope Hope Church will be here, but there are people that have been here for like, you know, five years, eight years, nine years. And I was talking this week to a guy that's been here for a long time. And he's walked with other people at Hope Church for a while now. And as we were talking about one guy in particular and just the growth in his life and the way that God's moving in his life, the guy I'm talking to about the third guy, this guy, he starts to cry. We were in public. I didn't cry, but he cried. So I was feminine and I felt bad for him. He was just <laughs> emotional in public. And what was he emotional about? He was just so happy about how God had loved our brother. Now, I mean, I think this guy had been sacrificing for that guy, but... That wasn't the story. The story wasn't, I'm great. Look at what I've done to lead this person. His story was just, God's great. And he felt God's greatness in the same way he would feel God's greatness about his work in like his son or something. Well, how does that happen? That is the work of the Holy Spirit. As we together know the love of God and show the love of God to each other. Now, very specific application. What are you going to do for our brothers and sisters around the world? Listen, you start loving other people, then together you're going to start loving our community, which means you're going to share the gospel. That is hard work. In Utah, it's hard work to share the gospel. Tell other people about what Jesus is and what he's done. Listen, in Utah, you get to do it with like English. 
I speak English. Most of the people I talk to speak English. Fantastic. When you do that in Utah, you do it with a stable government. You do that with like a largely like ambivalent government to what we're doing. You do it with like clean water and hot food. You, you do it in like a way that's kind of nice. If you will, then think about your brothers and sisters who do this same kind of work and they don't speak that language well. And the water is not necessarily safe. And the government is not only maybe unstable, but is also maybe pretty hostile to what they're doing. If you can love the people in this room just because you love them and God loves you and, and God loves them, think about the people around the world you feel you would feel the same way about if you could spend time with them. There's one guy in Central Asia that we really love, and I get to connect with him a lot. We text each other. He's in Central Asia. So when he goes to bed, he texts me, and then I wake up, and there it is. The way that we interact, too, is we're keeping each other accountable with a calorie counter app. Doesn't seem very fair, because I got way more options than he does for getting fat, but we calorie count together. And I pray for him, and I probably pray more for his body than like his soul or whatever, but you know, I'm, I'm thinking about him, and God's uniting us together. How? Not because we're great. We're terrible, but but we both have known God's love. So here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about how you can be sacrificial with this giving that we're doing. And if you can't be, all right, let's start diagnosing that. Do you know the love of God? Now, again, everybody can't give and everybody can't give right now. And uh, uh, don't, don't worry. You're, you're saved because of Jesus, not because of Lottie Moon, but... But if you're not willing to think about that kind of sacrificial giving, can I ask you about just a little bit how, how your heart is towards the Lord? What we're about to do now is take the Lord's Supper. And what the Lord's Supper is, is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. We do the Lord's Supper regularly. We do the Lord's Supper more regularly than John talks about loving your brothers. <laughs> Why is it so repeated? Well, because we need it. We need to keep hearing it and keep seeing it. And what is it? It is a picture of God's body and blood broken and spilled for you. So as we go to take the Lord's Supper this morning, I'd ask you to think about your brothers and sisters around the world who also can take this supper. I also want you to think about whether or not you know this Jesus we're talking about. This Lord's Supper is for those that have put all their faith and all their trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. If you understand what we mean by that, and that's you, you've put all of your faith in Jesus, then in just a second, I'm going to pray, and I want you to examine your heart. But if, you're, if that's you, when I say amen, and you're ready, come up and get the elements, sit down, hang on to them, and then we'll take them together. But if that's not you, if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus yet, then I would ask you not to take this supper. And there's going to be people not taking it. Don't feel weird. But that's a way for you to show honor to Jesus and to do his supper his way. As we pray, please think about the love that the Lord has for you and how that love can be expressed towards others. Father, I thank you so much that you've given us such a specific, beautiful, unfolding way to understand the kind of love you have for us. It's not just sort of acceptance that leaves people alone. It's not selfish that uses people to get something from them. Lord, you don't need anything from us. 
And yet you choose to love us and to love us in such an expensive way. Father, will you help our hearts to see that, our, our eyes to see that and our minds to understand it, but then our hearts to slowly really start to understand that. And then as we do, will you please help us to express that through our hands, that you would give us the opportunity to sacrifice and share with those around the world who sacrifice in order to share about who you are. As we go to take this supper, Lord, please help us to examine our hearts and know if we know you, that your name might be honored and your people blessed by this Lord's Supper. Pray these things in your son's holy name.